So today we continue to preach through a series of messages called, Who Are We? And we want to personalize that. Uh, who are you? Who am I? Who are our neighbors? We're looking at how to make uh, disciples in an identity really obsessed culture. And we have particularly been looking at the scriptures and then looking at culture and, and the, the world around us trying to, to maybe press a view of what it means to be human uh, upon us that isn't biblical. And so we've done that in a number of ways through the past week weeks. And today we take up, we're just going to do a drive-by on the subject of critical race theory. And um, that's a very complicated thing, and we're, we're simply going to take a couple of principles there and hold them up to the light of Scripture. And our goal here is not necessarily simply to be polemical or adversarial, but rather to, to preach the gospel to ourselves and to equip you to take the gospel on the streets and in your neighborhoods. So ultimately, our goal is a positive one that we would be able to, to go out and present uh, a winsome view of racial reconciliation uh, that's based on the scriptures and on the gospel. So you might say, well, why, why is that necessary? Well, if um, I don't want to insult anybody, but if you think why is that necessary, you probably haven't heard any news over the last year. I mean, the, the principles behind uh, that are often lumped under there uh, are dividing up counties and school districts. People are being arrested at school board meetings, um, in companies, uh, large corporations, people are being sent to uh, cultural sensitivity seminars, which are really uh, basically um, indoctrination sometimes into some of these principles. So you, you really do, whether you knew it or not, you need to think through and hear these things from a biblical perspective. And obviously this won't be exhaustive, but we're going to give our attention to it. The way that we're going to do that today is we're going to look at the book of Titus, uh, chapter 3, and it's on page 11 in your worship guide. You can turn there, Titus 3, and we'll be looking at verses 1 through 8. And this is the Apostle Paul writing to his disciple Titus, who's been left on the island of Crete to establish churches and appoint elders in this place. So this is what the Apostle Paul has to say to Titus. Remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready, to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate, and always to be gentle toward everyone. At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy saying, and I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. So hear God's word from Titus 3, 1 through 8. 
And our point today is simply to say this, after the entrance of sin into the world, uh, after Adam and Eve rebelled against God and all of us rebelled in them, uh, we are going to be left to ourselves full of malice and hate. But through the renewal of Christ, we can be transformed into a people who are ready to do good as opposed to malice. So it's a very simple, very simple thesis. Left to ourselves, we're going to be given over to malice and hate. Renewed in Christ, we can be given over to a posture of doing good. And we want to look at that very simply under three headings. Number one is the reality of malice. Uh, number two is the renewal of the gospel. And number three is the readiness to do good. So that's your alliterative uh, outline there, reality, uh, renewal, and readiness to, to hang these points on. So if you think about the reality of malice, you find that the Apostle Paul, and remember that the Apostle Paul outwardly is a squeaky clean guy. Squeaky clean. He's a Jewish Pharisee, which means outwardly he has kept the Ten Commandments all his life. He says, with regard to legalistic righteousness, I was faultless. But Paul has come to understand the gospel, and so now he's able to look inside himself and see who he really is, and he identifies with the pagan Gentiles on Crete. He says, we too, all of us together, and that's really important from the beginning of what we're saying today, we too all, every ethnic group, every racial group, every national group, every tribe, every socioeconomic level, we all were at one time foolish, disobedient, enslaved to passions. And what we really want to focus on today is being full of malice, and envy, and being hated, and hating other people. We're going to re reduce that down to malice and to hatred. And we're going to look particularly at issues of race because we've sort of narrowed it down that way, even though the Bible doesn't, doesn't do that. We've got lots of malice. Left to ourselves, we've got malice to go around everywhere, but we're going to focus on that. As we try to define this and move forward with it, I want to say that my own, my own opinion, having listened and studied a little bit, is that people throw around the term racism all the time without defining it whatsoever. And I get the impression that it can mean anything from, hey, look, because of my background, my upbringing, my, my cultural lens that I look, things, look, look at things through, I'll never really be able to fully understand you. And I think that's, that's a completely legitimate statement. We can never have a, a full 100% understanding of another person. I'm not calling that any kind of sin, right? And so when we talk today, we're not actually going to use the term racism so much as we're going to use racial malice and racial hate. And so malice is the intent, heart, thoughts, or actions and plans to harm or, or to do ill to another person. Now, immediately, if you're thinking through this, you'll say, well, the command to love other people has two aspects. It is not only don't do malice and hatred, but it is positively do good. And so we'll expand. I think you'll give me liberty to expand malice and hate to include as a sin the neglect of doing good to other people based on race, ethnicity, nationality, or tribe. Okay. You'll grant me that? Everybody nod. Okay, thank you. You'll grant me that. Because I think it's consistent with the scriptures. 
And so what we want to say is that there is real racial malice, and we need to, to own up to the fact that the United States has a history of chattel slavery, of, of violence and lynchings and all kinds of things, and uh, there has been racial malice, hatred, and we want to say that there still is, and the Bible gives us category, this is the category that you put it in. So only a year and a half ago, just down the road in Brunswick, Georgia, how long does it take to drive there? Maybe three hours, three and a half hours, you can get to Brunswick, Georgia. Uh, two men hunted down, uh, two white men hunted down a young African-American man named Ahmad Aubrey in, in a development, and they shot and killed him. They, you know, there's a video of it. They just, they murdered this kid. That's just plain, straight out, that's what they did. And I think the, the more heinous thing that you see is the neglect to do justice or good by the authorities involved because this was sort of swept aside as some sort of citizen's police action. And uh, I don't, I'm not sure it would have ever even have been prosecuted had it not gone public through, through various means. So we can all stand here and look at our Bibles and say there's racial malice that has been and is still afoot in the United States. Now, I'm looking around this room, and I don't think many of you are intending to go out and, and have a plan to murder somebody, and I'm glad for that. But we want to back up a little bit and say there are thought and heart issues that we have to deal with. And I'll just give you a couple of examples. Um, and this, this goes both ways. If we had a multi-ethnic congregation, we would, be, we would be saying for everybody. But, you know, what is your response if you see a person who's from a different ethnicity, tribe, nationality, race from you moving into your neighborhood? First response. Is the first response to say, this is an, a person who bears the image of God that I have the privilege by the power of the Holy Spirit of loving, or is your first response, what's going to happen to the property values around here? I mean, keep it real, right? Just keeping it real. And then, you know, the second thing that, that just to, to pick another example, um, those of you who have children, uh, you, they're getting into teenage years and, and they're going to date, bring somebody home, maybe with a uh, prospect of marriage. Uh, would your first response in evaluating that person be the thing that's really true from the Bible? Does this person have a vibrant, living relationship of faith and repentance with Jesus Christ? Or I'm off-put by this person because they're different ethnicity, tribe, nationality. I have it on good report that maybe that could be true of us. So there's just room here. The Bible, you don't mind the Bible calling people out, do you? This is what it's for. It says here that there's, there's malice, there's hatred, there's neglect to love, and, and we can account for that within a biblical system, and, and it's, it's real, it's true. Now, I want to contrast that with um, some tenets of critical race theory, and listen, I don't want you to go out and be bombastic. If you look up 12 different writers over the last 23 years or more, you find shades of meaning about this. It's a complicated sort of moving target. But there are some things that are common to it. And, and I want to bring this up. Uh, really, critical race theory in these points is actually a religion. And I'm going to call it a religion. 
And we've said a number of times over the last couple of weeks that this flows out historically from Marxism. And I'm going to keep reminding you of this. I'll just do it in 30 seconds that, uh, you know, Marx said, let's, let's liberate the workers from their, their bourgeois oppressors. And so they started this primarily in Russia in 1917 or thereabouts. And uh, what they found is that it wasn't really successful. Uh, the proletariat didn't want to wake up. And suddenly they started, you know, to enlighten everybody and liberate them. They started murdering people by the hundreds of thousands and shipping them off to Siberia. And the total in the last century, again, is between uh, Russia, China, uh, maybe a few others, like 130 million people. Now, you, you, you kind of blink at that. You, you don't even know how to put a category on 130 million people. Like, I think the population of the U.S. now is about 300 million or something. I mean... It's an incredible number of people. So the thinkers, and they were Marxist thinkers that, that were following a guy named Gramsci in Italy and then the Frankfurt School in Germany, they got together and said, what's wrong? How come the proletariat is not waking up? And they said, well, it's not just economic and material oppression, it's oppression everywhere. And so we have to go after the educational systems, the cultural systems to help the proletariat wake up. And, I, and no, no matter which way you cut it, if you want to cut it along race, along gender, along sexuality, along economic lines, however you want to cut it, it's, it's really, as one author said, it's the same horse with a different rider. And so fundamental, and this is the religious dogma that goes in critical race theory, fundamental to the whole theory is that the world is made up of oppressors and oppressed. That comes without defense. It comes with an assertion. It's, it's a fundamental presupposition. And so, so you can't get out of that within critical race theory, that the world is to be divided to oppressors and oppressed. And in the United States, to look along, and, and critical race theory was, this is one of its weaknesses, it was defined along uh, black, white, or African-American, Anglo relational lines. And so white people are oppressors and, and black people are oppressed. And that's the end of the story. You can't, there's no way for you to get out of that. The only thing that you can hope for, and to me this is very ill-defined within the system, is there has to be a revolution, right? There has to be some kind of revolution where the oppressed overthrow their oppressors but my, my question is, when that happens, you just have the same problem all over again. And really, that's a Hegelian view of history. You know, you have to have these fights that move history forward. I quit now, all right? I stop simply to say that we oppose unequivocally the idea that human beings can be divided neatly, particularly by their skin color or origin, into oppressors and oppressed. And all that does is bring strife, division, uh, anger. It doesn't, it doesn't help anybody. We have a much more bold proposal. Everybody's an oppressor, and everybody can be oppressed. We're, we're really good. And I thought about this, you know, as I was preparing, preparing for this. I mean, if you watch uh, NBC on, like, Friday night or something, it's all about people murdering their spouses, I mean, I forget which show that is, but you just click by it. And, it's, you know, there's malice to go around all over the place, but, but we're, sticking, we're sticking with race right now. That, that we're, we're going with that. So we want to stand and say, no, we're not going to let you do this. We're not going to let you define human identity 
and social interaction in this way. The second thing, and I'll, I'll be brief about this, that we're opposed to in critical race theory is the use of language. And I, I'm not sure I understand it, and I'm not sure I can really go into it. But basically, the narrative of the oppressors is suspect and false because all your language does is promote oppression. Like if you, if you uh, the people in this room, I think most of you look kind of white, um, if you say something, it's promoting a system of oppression. That's, that's what your language has to do. And so then we're going to divide among oppressors and oppressed. The people who are oppressed, their narrative of history, their lived experience trumps anything that you have to say. And so this is why you redo history, all of it done through a racial lens. This is why um, uh, all of language becomes radically subjectivistic. It's just a tool of oppression or victimization. Now, I think it's better just to give you an illustration of one of the ways that this works. I know this for a fact, and if I've told you the story before, you'll bear with me. Um, I know for a fact that in a large corporation, uh, there was a person of color who was getting fired. And there was video evidence of um, you know, breaking company rules, not being diligent at your job. And then there was also testimony from coworkers. Well, this company happened to have a diversity officer, and as they were bringing this, you know, you have to be really careful about how you fire people these days. And so they were, as they were gathering everything to, together, the diversity officer came and said, what color are your witnesses to this person's, you know, fireable offenses? And the answer was, uh, all three of the witnesses are white. And the person said, their testimony then is invalid because the lived experience of people of color trumps that of, of, of oppressors. And so you see that this, this ends up with all kinds of like practical consequences for things. And what we just want to stop and say now is that we have a narrative that's better. It, it's, it's uglier in the beginning, but it's better in terms of the gospel to engage the world with is, yes, I can be a person who's I, left to myself, I'm a person filled with malice and hate, and so are you. But now, that's the reality of it, according to this text. Let's move on then to the good news that we have, that there's renewal for people in and through Jesus Christ. Look at the verses. There's a, a pregnant but here. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared... He saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. So, so what Paul's saying is that the gospel, the good news of the gospel, has broken in. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, there are a group of people who've been washed from their malice and hatred. Whether it be along racial, ethnic, tribal lines, whatever it is, they've been washed They've been given a rebirth with a new heart that is now inclined towards loving God and loving other people. And all this came not because they were better than anybody else, but because of the powerful working of the Holy Spirit. And all that, that, that working of the Spirit was poured out on us through Jesus, the Son of God, being crucified and raised as our Savior, so that the one who believes by the power of the Holy Spirit is forgiven forever and declared righteous forever. 
forgiven and declared righteous, and now he or she is an heir of God. He's been adopted into the family of God with the hope of eternal life. I'm just repeating what's in those verses. So just to illustrate this a bit, I want to tell you about John Perkins. Some of you may have heard of John Perkins. Uh, he's 91 years old now. He was, he was born in Mississippi in 1930. Shelly and I had the privilege of going there in the late 70s to the ministry in Mississippi and staying for a week. But John Perkins, um, his older brother served in the armed forces in World War II. So we're probably up to 46 or 47 now. And um, he came home from the war, and he was standing outside a segregated movie theater in Mississippi. And at that time, law enforcement people would come by, and if you were simply talking and you happened to be uh, black, they would beat you with their baton. Well, so his response to having a baton raised at him was to grab that baton, and he was shot twice through the stomach because of that. So right quick, they packed up John, that was his brother, they packed up John Perkins and shipped him out of Mississippi off to California before something catastrophic happened to him. And it was in California that Perkins met Jesus. He heard the gospel in evangelical churches in California. And he said, I came to realize that they were singing, uh, Jesus loves the little children. All the children of the world, red and yellow, black and white, they're precious in his sight. And they actually believed it, and they actually demonstrated that it was true. And so he grew in a Bible-believing evangelical faith that was that, that had demonstrated for him racial reconciliation. Now, I think he got a nice job out in California and could have stayed there, but Jesus got hold of him to go back to Mississippi. So he went back to Mississippi right around his hometown, Mendenhall and Jackson area, and in 1971, he was involved in a protest uh, in Jackson, and he was jailed and then severely beaten, and some people use the word tortured by his white jailers, and um, he sort of had uh, an epiphany, a vision of what ministry could look like. In the, in the raging faces of his jailers, he, he said, I want to preach a gospel that reaches these men as well as African Americans that we might be reconciled together. But here's the point. Um, the Lord had work to do on John Perkins first. And this is his testimony, not mine. He, uh, he, uh, the Lord made it clear to him that he had to forgive the people who had tortured him and to be rid of his own malice and hatred. And that's what the Lord did for him. I actually heard him say this you know, with his own mouth. It's in, his, it's in his books. But the Lord healed him and gave him forgiveness. And this is what, what God does. This is what the Holy Spirit does in a person who is renewed. Now, you might say to yourself, well, he had every reason in the world to have malice and hatred, right? But you see, Jesus doesn't do that. Malice, hatred, unforgiveness, whether it's, it's neglect of love, whether it's things that go around in your mind, whether it's response to being victimized, Jesus gives people renewal, rebirth by the Holy Spirit, and freedom from malice and hatred. And that's what he did for John Perkins. So I just ask you, you know, the question today for each person in this room is, do you know this risen Christ by the Holy Spirit? You really know him. You're confident that, yes, I've trusted him, and I see the evidence of a new heart and a new life in me.
My sins are forgiven. I'm counted righteous in Christ. I'm an heir of eternal life. If not, then the Lord invites you to enter into that today simply by believing. You see in here, it's not because of righteous things that you've done, but because of his mercy that is received as a gift by faith alone. So believe, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And see, what this does is that this enables you to enter into the reality of malice and hatred more fully and to be cleansed of it. Because this is what we want to be honest about. If you're in Christ, you have a new identity in him. You've been declared righteous. You're a son or daughter of God. But you're not in heaven yet, so you still fight against your sin. So there's not a person in this room or in the church down the street or anywhere else that can't say that my negative stereotypes about other people, including socioeconomic, uh, including ethnic, national, whatever you want to do, tribal, if you're, if you're in Africa, those things pop back up. They, they rear their ugly heads, and, and you find yourself, oh, I'm there again. Well, this is the good news of the gospel, is that you can address those head-on, confess them the way that we did today in our confession, be forgiven, and be transformed and renewed in your heart and mind and thinking. This is what the good news of the gospel is. And the deal is, the the tenets of critical race theory aren't going to change anybody. It's a legalistic religion that puts you in permanent penance. And what we have is something completely antithetical to that, to tell the world there's good news, there's new life, there's forgiveness and the gift of righteousness in Jesus Christ. And so here we want to part company with some of our brothers, um, I'll just leave it at that. We're going to part company with some of our brothers who want to stand up and say, I'm a racist and I'll always be a racist to the end of my life. These are people who, who know Jesus Christ. And I'm saying, if you're going to say like last week, you see, this is very parallel to last week. If we're going to, to fight against you labeling yourself as gay or homosexual or, or a pedophile or a drunkard or whatever you want to, to, to say your sin pattern was from your old life, you don't identify that by any, any more because you've been made new in Christ. We want to say the same thing about racial malice. I'm not going to walk around the rest of my life and say, I- I'm filled with racial malice. That's what defines me. Now, that was true in my old life, right? That I have, that's what it says right here. We were filled with malice and hate. But in my new life, I'm filled with Jesus Christ and with the Holy Spirit. And it is affirming and walking out that identity that changes us. That's how people change. And so this is, this is where we want to really press on the issue of having a biblical view of the gospel. Now, the same thing works the other way. If you happen to be a person who identifies as oppressed, um, then the same thing's true for you. You can be like John Perkins. You don't have to, you don't have to make that your identity anymore. You come into a new identity. You're... you're You're a son or daughter of Jesus Christ. You're a son or daughter of God through faith in Jesus Christ. You have the Holy Spirit. You don't have to to wear a victim label. You can say, I I triumph in Christ. And so this is the good news of the gospel. So we talked about the reality of malice. We talked about renewal according to the gospel. And then we just want to, to briefly say, 
what this does for us is it makes us a ready people. And I really want you to, like, if you need to stand up and walk around, this is, this is near the end of the message, but, but I want you to hear this part really clearly because listen to what Paul says in verse 8. Um, this is a trustworthy saying. So what is the saying that was trustworthy? It was that long statement of the gospel. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing, rebirth, and renewal of the Holy Spirit, which he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior. And having been justified by faith, we're heirs of God with the hope of eternal life. That is a trustworthy saying or set of sayings uh, if you want to divide up the, the, the Pauline sentences. And that is trustworthy. And he says to him, I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. And what I want you to hear in that is believing the gospel on a daily basis and the richness of God's mercy makes you stand in a posture that's ready to do good across racial, ethnic, tribal, national boundaries, and across anything else. Maybe it needs to start in your home. I don't want to see anybody on, on NBC, whatever, Dateline. Um, <laughs> so, so we really want, and this is, this is where our proclamation has to be a gospel-centered proclamation. So I'm not sure how much I want to encourage everybody to get into the nitty-gritty of 10,000 subpoints of critical race theory. I think what we want to do is stand up and say, we have good news. We have really good news. Racial malice is real. Renewal in Christ is real. A posture of being ready to do good is, is, is a real reality of that. And so he's able, I go back up to the top now, based on this, this steady diet of the gospel, he says, remind the people to be subject. Now, who doesn't want these people right here for neighbors and friends and, and government? Remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever's good. You see this, this repeated phrase, be, be in a posture to do what's good as opposed to malice to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate, and always to be gentle toward everyone. This is what believing the gospel can and is intended to do for us, to give us a posture of service. So uh, last night, um, I was struggling around for illustrations. And, I, and those of you, I lived in Philadelphia for 20 years, so I get to make fun of people from New Jersey. It's just across the line from New Jersey. So I have a story about New Jersey that just makes me smile. So what I read last night is there's a, there's a town in New Jersey called East Rutherford, New Jersey. And what happened in 2018 is that there, it looked like on the picture in the story, um, I give the footnote to CBS, whatever that was. The picture in the story had about six lanes on the freeway on that side of the barrier. So I just mean it's a big highway, interstate, somewhere near East Rutherford. And what happened is the, the armored car was driving down the road and, and, and this, oh yeah, New Jersey, okay, sorry. Yeah, this armored car was, somebody's from New Jersey, I just remembered. Anyway, the armored car is driving down the road and they said there was a mechanical failure, whatever that means. I'm not really sure how your armored car has a mechanical failure that makes the back door pop open. 
<laughs> so bags of money are flying out onto the freeway, and they're breaking open. And by the accounting in this, in this news article, they lost a half a million dollars. They had $500,000 uh, swirling around out there on the freeway. Well, now you can imagine, this is a New Jersey freeway. There had to be some Philadelphia people over there too, for sure. Um, uh, people were stopping in the middle of the freeway, so there were two car wrecks out there trying to gather up, gather up money. And uh, I saw a picture of the Brinks driver. He's out there, and, and it's funny. The people don't have bags or anything. They're holding these big wads of money in their arm. Anyway, they're gathering up, and I think in the end they found um, $230,000 that they gathered back up. And then get this, $11,000 was actually turned in by people. Go New Jersey, right? I'm not going to say anything about Philadelphia. I'll just leave it. But anyway, um, but they were left missing about $250,000 in the end of this whole thing. Now, why would I go to all that trouble to tell you that long story? Because I want you to have in your imagination that view of things. I want you to have in your imagination that view of things. Look right there in the middle of verse 6. It says, he has poured out on us. The Holy Spirit has been poured out on us generously. 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 You've got like a whole armored car full of mercy, grace, forgiveness. God has been good to you if you're in Christ. He's, he's poured out his love on you in every way possible. He watches over you. So you can just drive down the freeway with the back door open. You, you, and when you don't believe this, you stand up and affirm the gospel again, right? You say, I've got largesse. I've got, I've got mercy, grace, goodness to spare because there's a river of life that flows through me by the Holy Spirit. Let me be in a posture to give. Now, uh, I would just say that before we move on to even apply that in, in any way, that we want to, to think about this, you might want to start at home. Start at home and expand. Start at work and expand your circle. So I know that nobody else is really uptight like me. You don't have like goals and plans. And then, you know, you're trying to do something and somebody comes and says, will you help me do so and so? And you say, no, I'm busy. Uh, doesn't it look like I'm already on a mission here? You see, if you really have... If God's good, right, and if you're full of, of mercy and, and grace, then, then you're able to say, look, God brought me this person to ask me for help. So apparently in his sovereignty, I have time both to help, and you can insert in there if you want, my wife, <laughs> and get done the things that I need to get done. And so then you're practicing throwing open, you're practicing all day long throwing open the doors to your armored truck, okay? All right, now let's move on. Like, you're doing that, and let's talk about going cross-culturally or racially. And I think that this is really important, is that part of your self-examination has to be, part of your self-examination has to, we've been talking about that light a lot, okay? So I just have to choke it back and go, keep going. All right, um, Part of your self-examination has to be when I'm crossing uh, socioeconomic, racial, ethnic uh, uh, barriers in terms of loving people that 
I don't want to reaffirm and confirm old stereotypes. Come back, y'all. I see everybody. You want the lights to come on. Come back. Um, I don't want to confirm those things. And so I'm really thinking mostly now about Africa, all right? I'm thinking about Africa. Maybe I'm thinking about Haiti, where there's just this natural posture. You're the rich Americans. We're the poor, needy people. You bring the stuff. We take the stuff. This is how it works. And people wrote, uh, the guys over at Covenant College wrote a great book called When Helping Hurts. Great theological book, which says to everybody, don't do that. You're, you're assaulting the image of God in a person. Let me go and sit and say, as an image bearer, how can I lead you to Christ and then lead you to be a person who fulfills the cultural mandate with the resources that you have available to you? And everybody reads it, then everybody goes to Africa and ignores it. Americans are terrible. I'm sorry, I'm American. I can say that. I mean, you, just, you, you read this, and then you're in too big a hurry. Here, here's the thing. I want you to sit there. I just want you to sit there for six months. Just sit there and watch. Where does stuff go? Who gets the benefit from it? How is it distributed? What happens to the building that you built? Okay, so I just quit. I quit now. That's my little saw. Anyway, so we want to be careful as we try to love people to, to treat people with dignity and not assume certain profiles that have been, that have been ingrained in all of us. Here's the second thing that, that we want to say really quickly as we close is that we do want to use our voices. So in repentance, we all want to say, that when Cousin Bub makes a racial slur, that we're going we're to speak out about it. And we're going to speak out about it in a gospel way. We're going to say, Cousin Bub, um, Jesus set me free from that. I, was, I used to be a person who had malice towards people, but, but I've been set free. Would you like to be set free too? The second thing we're going to do is when you go to the school board meeting or wherever you go, uh, you're going you're gonna to speak up and say, this idea of oppressors and oppressed is not going to get us anywhere. I've got good news. We're all full of malice and hate, and we can all be made new in Christ. We can be ready to do good. I've got good news. I'm, I'm an ambassador of the gospel wherever I go. And so, brothers and sisters, this is, we, you know, again, this, we're, we're, uh, this is like putting your finger on an elephant. This is a much bigger subject than what we've covered today. But I think it gives you sort of a place where you can begin to apply the gospel to yourself and other people saying, look, left to ourselves, all of us are full of malice and hate. But we can be, we can be renewed in Christ to be people who are poised to do good. And my apologies to all the New Jersey people. So, uh, let's, let's pray together. Father, uh, we want to uh, come and, uh, bring ourselves before you and ask you to work mightily in us that we might uh, turn away from our sins of malice and hatred persistently and that we might be made new in the gospel and have the largesse and, and, and riches of your mercy pouring through us to other people. So will you please, Lord, in, in Jesus' name, have your way with us. Amen.